As you are turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28, let me let you uh, remind you or rather bring to your attention some resources on the back table there. Uh, One, we've been encouraging you to pray for our church regularly and for members in the church. And uh, Rebecca Norberg has helped prepare for us and update our prayer calendar. And so you'll find a prayer calendar on that back table, which will just has a different either a family in the church to pray for or a different focus to pray for. Uh, There are a couple books back there. You can feel free to grab one of those and take it with you. Some on church membership, a couple on uh, how to listen well to sermons. So my aim is to get better and better as a preacher, and your job is to get better and better as a hearer. So there are a couple of those back there. There's a a quarterly uh, calendar so that we can see upcoming events. And so be sure to, to check that out on your way out. And let me pray for us before we look at God's Word together once more. Father, we pray that as we now come to your Word to hear its proclamation, that you would feed us, you would nourish us, that you would convict us of sin by the power of your Spirit, that you would inform us, that you would give us faith to believe your promises, and that you would give us the will to obey. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite memories of all time is from a few years ago when I came home after being in Romania for only about 10 days. But technology is awesome, isn't it? I was able to FaceTime with Rachel and the kids, and it was so awesome to be you know, thousands of miles away and yet see their faces and hear their laughs and talk with one another. We figured out how we could send messages to one another, and yet there's something about being with one another, right? About being with one another that is so much better than just seeing each other on a screen. So my flight came into RDU, and the excitement starts to build And I know I'm going to be with my family soon. And so the doors open up and there's this long hallway. And at the end of the hallway, I see Rachel and Isaiah and Jana. And they're holding up signs saying, welcome home, dad. We missed you. And the kids take off running towards me and jump in my arms. And I hug them and Rachel follows them. And we all share hugs and kisses together again, right, with one another in one another's presence. And I'm sure the Stoddards felt something similar to that recently as Sophie has been in Asia recently. We're glad to have you back with us in our presence today. Uh, There's something that can't be replaced by that technology. It's this idea of presence. This idea of presence. No matter how advanced technology gets, it will never be enough to equate to or replace the joys of presence. But my short trip to Romania is nothing compared to what others go through. I think of missionary friends who are separated from their extended families for years. Think of people who have lost loved ones, spouses, parents, even children. But my short time away from my family in Romania is really just an analogy for our time as believers here in this earth, here in this world, we are not at home in the world. And if we are, then there's a problem. 
It, it would be like if I had forgotten my family on that short time away in Romania. We are not in, at home in the world. We face sorrows and loneliness. We face hardships as we travel along this difficult road home. And we will face all of these things, sorrows, trials, difficulties, loneliness, for the rest of our lives. It could be de- depressing if we think about it. And yet in our passage for this morning, we find precious promises of the presence of God in this life and in the life to come. We find promises to comfort us, promises to sustain us, to hold us up. We find promises that assure us that God will see us through. And all of these promises ultimately are found in Christ who came and made his dwelling among us who lived in in perfect obedience to the Father, who died a criminal's death on the cross and who rose from the dead. He is the mediator between God and man. And He is the reason God has made His home with us, we who are in Christ. So let's consider this story and these precious promises that we find together in our text, Genesis 28, 1-22. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached into heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put 
under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The big idea behind this passage is that in this life of exile, we will face sorrows, loneliness, and hardships. But God has promised to be with us, and he will be with us to the end. It's this idea of God's presence with his people. So we'll walk through this passage under three main headings, and then I'll conclude with some brief implications for us. The three headings are God's people in exile, God's promises for exile, and God's praises in exile. So the first shows our need, God's people in exile. The second shows God's gracious provision, God's promises for exile. And the third shows our thankful response to God, God's praises in exile. So first, notice God's people in exile. Isaac sends Jacob to Paddan Aram to find a wife. Do not take a wife from the Canaanite women, he tells them. Not like your brother Esau. Isaac is concerned for the purity of this this promised people, of this chosen people. And this is a theme that's developed throughout the scriptures. We are a particular people. We are a people who have been called out and separated from the world. So Jacob would need a wife who would not be prone to worship the pagan gods of the culture, though we find that that will prove more difficult than they might think. So Isaac gives Jacob instructions on finding a wife. He sends him out, but he sends him out with a blessing. He repeats upon Jacob this blessing of Abraham. May God Almighty, El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring to take possession of this land. Jacob is sent out with this blessing And yet don't miss miss the the fact that he is sent out. He receives the promise of the land, and yet where is he going? He's leaving the land. Jacob is being sent out into exile. Like Adam and Eve before him who were sent out of the garden because of their sin, they were sent out east from the garden. So is Jacob sent out from his family, from his home, from everything that he had known because of, as a consequence of his sin. He's sent out alone with very little provisions. All he has is this promise that his father keeps repeating to him. May the Lord bless you. It was a long journey for Jacob, hundreds of miles. We can imagine he would travel perhaps from well to well or from town to town on his way. And yet we see in this story that he is caught somewhat in the middle of nowhere outside of a city. The text says a certain place. Notice how many times... The text repeats this place, a stone from this place. He laid down in this place. He comes to a certain place when it begins to get dark. So picture this, tired and all alone on a long journey. Lonely, afraid, perhaps filled with sorrow at thinking of all he has left behind. Uncertain of what lies ahead, but he can't go back. 
his brother would kill him. So he lays down to sleep with all these thoughts whirling around in his mind, and the only pillow he has is a stone that he finds in this place. You'll remember that Jacob's ancestors later also lived in exile. God had foretold this to Father Abraham, saying, Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But God would bring judgment on the nation which oppressed them. He would send them out with great possessions. And eventually, after their rescue and after their wanderings in the wilderness, he would bring them back to the land of promise. But really, this life of exile is not just that of Jacob and the Israelites. This is our life as well. This life is a life of exile for the people of God. Uh, in every time and in every place in this world. But what does that mean for us that we are living in exile? It means that this is not our home, first of all. This is not our home. But it also means that we can and we should expect difficulties and troubles and trials in this life. So a long-distance runner pushes himself up the steep incline, knowing if he can just get over this hill, then there will be smoother roads ahead. And then he turns a corner and sees another steep incline. We often think if we can just get over this hump, if we can just get past this trial, then our life will go smoothly. And it may for a time. It's not to say that there are never any times of rest in this world, but they are always short-lived. We must know this truth. We are a people in exile. We are a people who are sojourners in this life, and we are traveling on our way to our homeland. And like Adam and Eve, and like Jacob, and like the Israelites before us, we can thank our sins for this trouble-filled world in which we live. It would be easy to blame it all on Adam and Eve for their sin. They plunged our world into ruin. But while we do suffer consequences, great consequences from their sin, the Bible teaches us that God holds us all responsible for our sins. So what is sin? In our catechism questions this morning for our children, you have that in your bulletin. Sin is lack of conformity to or transgression against God's holy law. What does transgression mean? Doing what God forbids. What does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. Our sins, the scripture teach us, scriptures teach us, separate us from the loving presence of God. Like thick clouds on a cold day keep us from feeling the warmth of the sun, so our sin keeps us from experiencing the loving presence and favor of God. But really, it's much worse than that, isn't it? Our sin actually deserves wrath, punishment, not simply separation. It's not simply that we deserve to be separated or pushed away from God, but that we deserve to have Him present with us in wrath. And we talked about our sin last week, especially in regards to our relationship. Remember that dysfunctional family. How we are guilty of some of those same sins of uh, Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. But consider now for a moment what it is you deserve because of those sins. 
for using others rather than loving them, for manipulating others, for seeking your own desires and ignoring the needs of others, for seeking your own will rather than the will of God, for listening to some voice rather than the voice of God himself, as certainly as Adam and Eve deserve to be cast from the garden, so we deserve to be cast from God's loving presence forever. This is what our sins deserve. But as we will see, God doesn't simply work according to what we deserve. Amen? Praise God. For in our story, Jacob does not get what he deserves. We saw God's people in exile. Now notice God's promises for exile. God's promises for those in exile. We get back to our story in verse 12. After Jacob had laid his head on a stone to go to sleep, he has a dream in which he sees the Lord. Now, this isn't just any ordinary dream. This is a vision, a revelation of God himself. So what that means is that God is speaking to Jacob through means of this dream. So there is general revelation, which is God showing who he is by nature, by what he has made and the moral law within. And then there is special revelation. Right? God communicating to us in a more direct and supernatural way. Dreams, visions, theophanies, direct words. But now we have the special revelation of God in a more permanent form in the Old and New Testament of Holy Scripture. So out of nowhere, God surprises Jacob in this dream. And this dream is exciting. Have you ever had a dream that was just really exciting? It was so real you thought you were there. You, you wake yourself up doing some action that you were doing in your dream. It was so real. It was so exciting. It seemed like it was so real and you were amazed by what you saw. Well, this dream was amazing. Notice the three beholds in verses 12 and 13. Behold, look, there's a ladder. And behold, look, angels are descending and ascending. And behold, look, the Lord stood above it. You can really sense Jacob's excitement at what he's seeing. The excitement of this dream. He's like a kid at Disney World saying, look at that. Look at that. I can't believe that. He can't believe what he sees. What he sees represents something even more amazing than the vision. For what he sees represents God coming down himself along with his ministering angels to meet with and comfort Jacob. Notice what he heard also. But before we actually get to what he heard, what would you expect that he would hear from the Lord? Jacob, a swindler, a cheat, a deceiver, He had just deceived his brother out of the blessing. Like explicitly lying about what the Lord had done to help him get the food. Blasphemy. We haven't heard any particularly spiritual words from the lips of Jacob. Except for those blasphemous words. And that's why... uh, so, so what would you expect the Lord to say to Jacob? There are times in your life when you know what someone is going to say before they even say it, right? You've missed a task and your boss calls you to his office. 
You miss an assignment and the teacher asks to see you after class. Your mom comes in your room and she says your full name, right? You can sense the disappointment, the anger, and you know you're about to get it. So I wonder if Jacob had that uneasy feeling as he saw the Almighty God in this dream. I wonder what he felt. I wonder if he felt a pain in his conscience now that the Lord himself stood before him in this dream. Maybe he wanted to find a good hiding place like Adam and Eve had found years before. Sometimes we just want to hide. We feel the guilt. We feel the shame and we just want to hide. Where there, there was Jacob and the Lord was there in his dream. There was no hiding there. What would the Lord say? Would the Lord let him have it? Would he make Jacob feel the disappointment he deserved? And the hammer doesn't drop. No words of anger or disappointment, not even commands or imperatives that Jacob needs to do to make up for his sins. Only words of grace and comfort and promises that would see him through. Notice what he hears. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham and your father and the God of Isaac. As if to say, you know, I really am real. And then he reaffirms to Jacob the promises he had made to Abraham and Isaac. I will give you and your offspring this land. Your offspring will be numerous and great. And in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But notice that the Lord adds another promise, a personal touch for Jacob. Further promises to give Jacob comfort for his journeys. Look at what they are in verses 15 and following. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Did you catch those promises? Take note of those because they are very precious. I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you. No, not until I've done everything I said I would do. These Promises are very precious, not only to Jacob, but also to us because we hear them repeatedly throughout Scripture to God's people. What makes these promises so amazing is not that they were made simply to Jacob, but that they find their fulfillment in Christ. These promises are not only for Jacob, they are for the woman of God who trusts in Christ, for the man of God who leans upon Christ, for the child of God who hopes in Christ. These promises are for you and me, for all who are in Christ. You see, really, these promises to Jacob are only shadows of the greater promises that we have in Christ. Christ is the ladder which reaches into the heavens and brings us to God, or rather brings God down to us. Do you remember in the New Testament, in the gospel, where Nathanael meets Jesus? Nathanael had heard that Uh, that Jesus was the Messiah and asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus answered, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Well, of course, Nathanael was curious. How does he know me? And Jesus answered, because he saw him 
when no one else was around, when no one else could have seen him, Jesus saw Nathanael, and then Nathanael believed. But notice what Jesus said after that. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now listen to this quote from John Calvin. It's very helpful. It is Christ alone who connects heaven and earth. He is the only mediator who reaches down from heaven to earth. He is the medium through which the fullness of all celestial blessings flow down to us and through which we in turn ascend to God. He it is who, being the head over angels, causes them to minister to his earthly members. Therefore, as we read in John 1.51, he properly claims for himself this honor, that after he shall have been manifested in the world, angels shall ascend and descend upon him. See, don't miss the glorious aspect of this revelation to Jacob. In the book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, he refers to the complete otherness of God. God is completely other in his holiness. His holiness refers to the fact that he is completely separated and other than us, and he is completely pure in all of his ways, free from any corruption. We, on the other hand, are sinful and full of corruption. A royal king would hardly stoop down to meet with a peasant. But in this story, God himself stoops down to comfort the deceiver, Jacob. And in Christ, we have God not simply stooping down, but becoming a man, humbling himself to enter into his creation, humbling himself lower still to take the form of a servant and humbling himself yet further still to sufferings and death, even the shameful death on a cross. And he did this to stoop down to us and to give us his grace, to connect us poor sinners to the holy and righteous God. He alone is the mediator between God and man, through whom we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. And listen, friends, Christ stoops down to us now in his word. He is condescending to us now in the hearing of the reading and preaching of his word. He is with us. If you will receive these promises by faith, they are yours. I will be with you. I will keep you until the end. I will not leave you until I bring you all the way home. For all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Christ was rejected that you might be welcomed. He was cast out of the city gate so that we could enter into the holy place, the very presence of Almighty God. For this is what he did when he died on the cross for sinners, bearing the punishment due to us. He bore the wrath of God. He was separated from God for the sake of sinners who come to him in faith. Do you know him? Do you know this Messiah? Do you know the loving presence of God? Have you come to him through faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for sinners? Friends, he has precious promises for you if you will come to him. For once he draws you to himself, he will never leave you or forsake you. And when you die, you'll be carried away to his perfect and loving presence 
forever. And of course, there is no other way to respond to these things except for amazement, wonder, and worship. It moves us to praise. See, that's the thing about theology. It's not simply to be studied or learned or examined. Right theology moves us to doxology. That is a word of praise. That is giving praise and glory and worship which he deserves. Right thoughts about God make our spirits soar in worship to God. That's why we want the lyrics of our songs to be God-centered, to be Christ-exalting, to be biblical, to be rich in meaning. We don't simply want to be whipped up in a frenzy of emotionalism. We want to be affected through our minds as our hearts turn to worship the living God. And this is exactly how Jacob responds. Look at how he responds in verses 16 and following. We've seen God's people in exile, God's promises in exile, and now we see God's praises in exile. Surely, he says, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This is Jacob's Damascus Road experience. God appears to him, and he is changed. And isn't this how it works with all of us, at least in some measure? We, by nature, are enemies of God, living in sin, as Tracy mentioned earlier. We once, in once we walked, we walked in those things at one point, living for ourselves in transgressions and sin, dead to God. And we hear the word of God. We hear the gospel. And maybe it seems foolish to us at first. Or it just falls on deaf ears. But then something happens. One moment we hadn't had faith, but the next, it all makes sense. We hear the gospel of Christ and it becomes the sweetest thing in the world to us. Christ becomes our treasure. God appears to us in the preaching of his word and we are changed. We are made new. We are alive and we are filled with wonder and holy fear. But you might be curious about this. Why was Jacob afraid? Did you catch that? God had just showed up and made wonderful promises to him when he deserved punishment, and Jacob is afraid. Shouldn't he just be excited, overwhelmed with joy, jumping up and down, shouting woo-hoo? That's what we would do, right, as as good Americans. our, Our American sensibilities might have a hard time figuring this out. Why is he so afraid? But I do think we have categories for this. It might be something like, The feeling you have as you ride in an airplane high above the earth and as everything becomes miniature, you realize just how small you are and how big the world is. Or perhaps it's like how being at the ocean makes you feel small and weak and vulnerable. There's a certain fear to being in the ocean, especially deep in the ocean. Maybe it's like the feeling small children have when a large someone comes to them in a Disney costume. There's a mystery to it, and yet they're drawn to it. Amazement and wonder mixed with fear at what's mysterious. But I almost feel like asking forgiveness for for those analogies because, of course, none of them come anywhere close 
to giving an accurate representation of what it's like to come before the holy God of the universe. Perhaps it's more like those ideas, but mixed with that of being outside in the middle of a thunderstorm. You're filled with awe and wonder, and yet you are afraid. There's a comfort from God's goodness, and yet there's a holy reverence because of His power and His sovereignty and purity. It's like it's said in the Chronicles of Narnia of Aslan the lion. He is not a tame lion. And this, friends, results in a reverential worship. Jacob gets up in the morning. He takes his stone pillow and turns it into a pillar, a monument, a testimony to him and anyone else who sees it of God's gracious presence. And he makes a vow saying, If God will be with me and provide for me and care for me and bring me back, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now this isn't full faith, but it is, is it, it isn't full doubt either. Jacob is becoming someone new. God is making him new. He's giving him faith. This is an I believe, help my unbelief sort of faith. And we see a couple of big Old Testament themes in seed form here. One is the tithe, of course. Like Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, so Jacob promises to give a tenth in honor to the Lord of everything that he gets. But notice also this idea of the house of God. The stone, he says, which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. But little did he know that God indeed would build his own house on the earth, not in the form of a tent or tabernacle, not in the form of a holy temple, but in the form of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. As John tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and and truth. And in the person and work of Christ, we have seen God Himself. He has explained God. And as we look to Him in faith, He fills us. He indwells us with His Spirit so that we will walk in His way, so that He will produce in us fruit for His glory. But, friends, we wait for yet another day. For the Scripture says, when you believed, the Spirit sealed you, for He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we receive the full possession. And God has made us His church into His dwelling place. For as we gather together to worship Him in prayer and singing and hearing and preaching, He is present with us. These gatherings, simple as they may seem, are small tastes of heavenly realities. Drops of honey to whet our appetite and prepare us for the land flowing with milk and honey. For one day we will enjoy God's presence perfectly and fully forever when we hear that loud voice from the throne which will say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then we will worship with awe and reverence like never before. For we will see him face to face. We will be enthralled by his holiness, captured by his glory. We will forever be the sons and daughters in the house of our great God. 
Let me conclude with just a few brief applications for you. First, remember that this is not your home. Earth is not your home. If you are in Christ, you were made for another world. And this, of course, changes our view of how we live in this world. Will we live as though this is our home? Amassing goods and being enthralled by the things of this world? By the pleasures of this world? Or will we live as citizens of heaven, storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven as we look forward to eternity with Christ? Second, remember that you are not alone. In Christ, you are not alone. Never alone. You have the family of God, the church to walk with you through this life. Open yourself up to the church, to one another in the church. Let's become vulnerable with one another. Carry one another's burdens. Serve one another. Act as though you are family because in Christ you are family. But further, God himself is with you in the indwelling by his spirit. And this is a real presence, not just a pretend, my thoughts are with you presence. The spirit of Christ is with you to comfort you, to sustain you, to uphold you, to cause you to persevere to the very end. This world is not your home. You are not alone. And third, remember the wonder of his presence. Never let it get old that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. Never let it get old that God became a man in Christ and dwelt among us. Never get over the fact that heaven is real and that one day we will be in God's loving presence forever. Rather, let it turn you to a wonder-filled worship of God. For imagine that day, friends. Imagine that day which will dwarf my experience at the airport seeing my family again. As wonderful as that was, as beautiful as that was, as wonderful as that memory is, the joy that I felt on that day will be enlarged, will be magnified to the nth degree beyond our wildest imagination. If there were tears of joy in my eyes on that day, Well, then what joy will there be when we stand in the throne room of God and we will run to him and he will embrace us and we will be in his presence. We will be at home with him like never before and forever. What will joy be like then? Let's pray. Dear Father, would you... Would you comfort us and sustain us by these promises that are ours in Christ? Um, Would you comfort us and sustain us by these? Not so that we can simply relax in this world of exile, but so that we can live a life of reverential worship before you. That we might serve as ambassadors of Christ that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. We pray that you would bind us together as a church so that we would experience the fullness of what you have for us in being a family of God, a part of the family of God. We pray that you would remind us daily that you indwell us by your Spirit, And we will depend on you to give us faith. 
We will depend on you to give us wonder and amazement of what you have done to overcome our sins. We thank you for Christ, our Savior. May he be exalted. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.